going to get started in Sunday school, continuing our Sunday school series intended to help us consider how our old theology, old in scare quotes, finds fresh application at current times. I just want to thank James Sullivan. He's downstairs. I should have mentioned this last week. James leads our junior high ministry under uh, Pastor Adam's oversight and does a great job down there, but just want to thank him for last week on what was an excellent exposition from Hebrews 12, clear, insightful, pastoral, just very, very blessed by our time in the word that he led us through. Also want to make an announcement that Dr. Owen Strand will be teaching in this Sunday school class on March 28th. Uh, We're going to focus on, we've been saying how our doctrine informs practical aspects of life and practical theology. And so he's going to teach on, really we wanted to have a lesson on the interface of anthropology and then how that influences our thinking around issues that have been raging a bit in society, race, critical race theory, other hot topics. Dr. Strand has done much thinking, much writing, much speaking on these matters in recent weeks and months. And so it's going to be a privilege to have him with us on March 28th here. Uh, He's with us all the time, but in this spot with us teaching. Um, So yeah, just as a reminder, we're considering practical theology, and we're doing that in snapshots. And this is just a reminder. This is, it's a caveat for me, but a reminder for every other lesson. None none of these lessons are intended to be like a comprehensive treatment on any doctrinal subject. These are snapshots. We're attempting to take doctrine that we are presupposing most of us hold at MRBC, and we're launching from there into the so what, or the practical aspect, the therefore of what Christ teaches us from his word. We're asking, how does the Bible tell me to think or shape my thinking about a particular issue? So today we're going to turn our attention toward the subject of trials and suffering. And why am I smiling about that? Well, we are often quick to give credit here to the providence of God when he arranges neatly topics that just seem to fit together like a hand in a glove. I just want to tell you that actually next week, Pastor Aaron is going to teach on God's sovereignty and finances. And today, in between our celebration of being debt-free, I'm going to teach on suffering. So, in the providence of God, right, Aaron? That's what we have before us. So, we're going to look at how our understanding of sovereignty should shape our perspective on suffering, on trials, Just another opportunity for a book plug. How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil by D.A. Carson is in our, it's on our book list this this, uh, year, on our reading list. You can see, I think there's probably a couple copies on our book nook, bookshelf out there. Just can't recommend that book high enough if you want to press in at all in this topic. Anything that I say today, you want to press out further, I would encourage you to grab that. If you want to do a deeper dive, and I mean a a very much deeper dive into theodicy or the problem of evil, I'd recommend a book called What About Evil? A Defense of God's Sovereign Glory by Scott Christensen. That one is not out there, and you can ask me about that later if you didn't get it, and I'd be happy to, to help you. So we live in a world that's marked by pain and loss, suffering, tragedy, hardship of many forms. Evil evil in the form of natural disasters and disease, tragedies from mistakes or accidents, and evil from human beings that's inflicted on one another. That is the Genesis 3 world in which we live. 
And if we live long enough, we will suffer. D.A. Carson says that in his book. You've heard others say that. That's not a surprise to those of you who are familiar with the pages of your Bible. From Genesis 3 onward, suffering, evil, trials fill its pages. The majority of the characters of Scripture did not live a charmed life. They faced difficulties. God's Word deals with those difficulties head on. Doesn't shy away from them. Doesn't shy away from the interface of evil and God's people and God's sovereignty and God's plan. I'll just note at the beginning I was reflecting. Compared to my grandparents, I live like King Solomon and my kids live like princes and princesses in his kingdom. Compared to people who lived in Eastern Europe and Russia in the early to mid 20th century, my life is a vacation. Some of you in this room have suffered substantially more than I may be able to imagine and the Lord has kindly and graciously seen you through and you've tasted of his goodness amidst those sufferings. Some of you may be here today, this morning and you're suffering right now and you're suffering and it is a deep river that you are wading through. And I just want to say that both to acknowledge those difficulties to say that the church, the people that are seated, seated around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are here to bear those burdens with you. And then to give a disclaimer that this lesson is not intended to be a nuanced balm for every wound you may be feeling. That's impossible from where I'm at to do that with the level of specificity that you may need. And so I would encourage you to reach out to somebody if you haven't, if you find yourself hearing these things and it seems like undiluted medicine. And in some instances, it may feel that way. But please reach out. Let us as a body bear burdens together. There is much comfort in what we're going to look at today. But it may not be as specifically and ably applied to your situation as need be in the body of Christ. So 45 minutes is not much time for walking a path in the life of faith together and burden bearing. So the goal this morning is definitely not to provide a take two of these Bible verses and call me tomorrow approach to the issue of suffering. The goal is to simply provide a biblical survey of the truth the Holy Spirit can use to sustain our faith when we face trials, when we face evil and suffering. So I want to begin with some important presuppositions. We have to begin here. They're in your paper. We're not going to look at most or any of the Bible references, you're going to do that on your own, but the presuppositions are clearly stated that undergird everything that I'm going to teach you today. These are absolutely necessary foundational teachings from Scripture, these presuppositions. Without them, you simply can't sustain a faith-filled biblical response to suffering. Before we read through them, I just want to say, too, when we think about this issue, especially as God's sovereignty interacts with evil and suffering we really need balance scripture is perfectly balanced you and i not so much we tend to be imbalanced we tend to minor and major in different places from one another and ultimately all different from where god would have us necessarily be perfectly balanced because we're imperfect people but his word is perfect An example of this, you may have a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have a stoic. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody who's maybe more on the manic side. 
on that stoic side of the spectrum, God is absolutely sovereign. And that doctrine, when we talk about here, looms the largest and the loudest. And on the, the manic side, maybe it's more of God's love and his goodness. The stoic loses everything. He has a Job experience. He coldly responds, it is of the Lord. Let's move on. God is sovereign. The under the end of the spectrum, right? The manic runs out of gas on a spring day and cries out, where are you, Lord? How long? Can't you do anything about this? I thought you were in control of these things, right? Most of us are somewhere in the middle, but we tend to lean one way or the other. The person who tends towards stoicism can make the mistake of being indifferent or thinking that God is indifferent towards suffering because he's sovereign. He needs to spend some time meditating on goodness and God's love and consider some examples of the scripture of God's choice servants lamenting, asking the Lord for help, seeing Paul ask to have a thorn removed. The person who tends more toward the emotionally manic side needs to be reminded of God's control and sovereign purposes for our life that extend way beyond personal comfort and ease. There are other imbalances. Maybe you're one who seeks to understand more of mystery than you should going beyond what is clearly revealed in Scripture. Maybe you're one who seeks to defend God from charges of wrongdoing and unwittingly actually remove his sovereignty from the equation. He can't possibly be sovereign over that. He would have never ordained that that would come to pass. And in defending his honor, his goodness, we actually end up with a God who's not sovereign. You could add more to that list, more examples. So what are these presuppositions? Well, first of all, God is absolutely sovereign and works all things after the counsel of his will. We actually sang that today. I was looking at some of the lyrics we sang, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. God is absolutely sovereign and works all things after the counsel of his will. Nothing that happens occurs outside of God's ordaining will, not even evil and suffering. Nothing. It's very important. Just a couple examples We'll reference these again later. I was struck by these. These are not examples that maybe we often go to in this week. They came to mind. Peter, at the end of John, when Christ looks at him and tells Peter, not merely looking into the future, but with the authority of divine will, how Peter will die a martyr's death. And when Peter says, what about him? Do him next. <laughs> about John. And Jesus says, what's it to you, Peter, if I want, if I will, if I desire John to stay there until I return. God's desire for Peter was different than John's. Peter's suffering was certainly within the counsel of God's will and would happen in accordance with that counsel. Paul, in Acts 9, when God, the Lord, tells Ananias what he's going to do, he says, I'm going to show Paul how much he must suffer for my sake. And in 2 Corinthians 11, you have a sampling of Paul's life that happens, I think, before the shipwreck that we read about in Acts, which I'm always enamored by, the fact that he says, I spent a night and a day in a deep and I've been shipwrecked. And then we read about a shipwreck later after he wrote 2 Corinthians, I presume. Um, all to say, nothing, not even evil, happens outside of God's sovereign will. Equally as important, God is good. God is good. Scripture is absolutely clear about that. Also, God loves the redeemed. How much? That he sent his own son to die while we were still enemies. That's how much. He loves us as much as he could love us. 
God is sovereign over evil, but is unstained by evil. He is not responsible for evil in the same way that human beings are when they commit evil acts, but he is sovereign over those acts. Human beings are morally responsible and accountable for all of their actions. Nobody can point to God and say, but you're sovereign. This only happened in accordance with your decree. Scripture won't allow that. God's absolute sovereignty and human responsibility are biblically compatible. I've given you some scriptures that lay them side by side. The scriptures expect us to accept that by faith. To see that that it does say that God is absolutely sovereign and that human beings are responsible. And because of that, we need to be reminded, lastly, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 29, 29. See also other references there. Now, that's a lot to take in and of itself, and that's just presuppositions for our lesson. But I've given you all the Bible verses so that you can go back and you can study these on your own. And some of these you find where you may lean one way or the other and you can press in where you feel that you need to press in and seek out the truth of God's word and meditate on those things. Now, what I do for the rest of our time today is, maybe to put it simply, is to consider Jesus. I want to approach this issue by looking at the way that God's sovereignty in suffering played out in the life of Christ. And from that then derive some, some lessons for us. So we want to simply consider Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 2, 8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. We want to remember Christ. Just start there. And it seems to me, and this could be wrong, it just uh, seems to, it's it's an, an inclination. It seems to me that there's often a disconnect when we talk about suffering and evil between our view of the cross of Christ and our view of personal trials. What I mean by that is this, we easily recognize and even rejoice at the necessity of suffering in Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf. And we're not nearly as quick to rejoice in the Lord's sovereign work and suffering in others' lives. We even maybe enthusiastically affirm that what he endured at the hands of God, we, we rejoice and affirm and say, praise God when the scriptures say that God was pleased to crush the Son. We're certainly hesitant to recognize that necessity of suffering in our lives or to credit the sovereign hand of God in bringing challenges to our lives for his purposes. There's a little bit of a disconnect there. Jesus was deeply acquainted with suffering. Isaiah 53.3 tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised. He wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. He was let down by his friends and later abandoned by them at his most difficult hour. He was betrayed to death by a friend, and none of that to mention the cross. And it's because of those things and more that we see in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, that he is a sympathetic aid for us. He he was tempted 
as we are in all things yet without sin. He endured suffering and he is a tender high priest to sympathize with our weaknesses. As we turn our attention to the cross and in particular this question of sovereignty and suffering, there are two sections of scripture that are referenced often in this overarching conversation and I want to use those as a launching point and maybe stay closer to the example of considering the example of Christ than just jump from them as proof text. So if you look at Acts 23, 2.23, Acts 2.23, and then we'll look at Acts 4, 27 through 28. In the cross, we have God's sovereignty and human suffering. We have God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Remember Peter in his sermon at Pentecost? I think we probably referenced this the first week because these are often verses that we recognize when we're discussing God's sovereignty and human responsibility. This man, Peter says in Acts 2.23, that is Jesus the Nazarene who was attested to them by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in their midst, in the midst of those whom he was preaching to. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty, unmistakably, it can't be defined any other way. You nailed to a cross. That is, the Jews in the audience. By the hands of godless men, that is, the Romans, who had a hand clearly in executing the Savior, and put him to death. Christ was put to death by the acts of men that are accountable for those acts, evil acts, And yet all of that occurred by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Look over at Acts chapter 4, 27. After the early church is growing and and blossoming and persecution is starting and Peter and John are arrested, they interact with the Sanhedrin, they get released they go back to the gathered people. It says, and when they heard this in Acts 4, 4.24, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Verse 27, for truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's all the human responsibility at play in putting our Savior to death. What did they do? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Jesus Christ was put on the cross at the hands of godless men by unrighteous leaders, by Gentiles who were wicked and who, by the people of Israel who had rejected their Messiah. And yet, all that happened was according to God's sovereign purposes. So it's both in the life of Christ. And it's both in our lives. And I want to look at three ways that God's sovereignty shapes our perspective toward trials. And I Again, I've given you many verses and we're not going to go through not even a fraction of them. Those are for you. 
And in our time together, I want to consider Christ and the examples that we have from him that I think also demonstrate these three ways. The three ways you have in your handout, keeping with what we wanted, the sort of the flow of our, of our practical theology Sunday school lesson to be is if, insert doctrine, then, insert practical takeaway. And so if God is sovereign, then, and these are three ways God's sovereignty shapes our perspective toward trials. And I just want to read them for you to set them in your mind. If God is sovereign, then I or we can find comfort in his sovereign control over our trials. If God is sovereign, then I can find hope in his sovereign purposes for my trials. And if God is sovereign, then I can find peace in his sovereign timing in my trials. And I think we see all of these things in the life of Christ. So first, if God is sovereign, then I can find comfort in his sovereign control over trials. The verses there that I've highlighted, and you could have put hundreds more, highlight the fact that evil does not happen outside the sovereign control of God. And the most evil thing that ever happened in the history of the world. There is nothing more evil than what happened to Christ. I mean, we, our minds can go to various places. He was sinless. Perfect. The Lord of glory. When we consider Christ and we reflect on what we just read and then we look at the way that things played out in his life, it's just made clear that the Lord's will was clearly involved in sending Christ to the cross and even before that in the suffering that he endured even before then. So let's look first at Mark 14. The whole time we're looking at these other examples, just again, don't lose the the foundational undergirding of Acts 2 and Acts 4 that summarize this whole thing for us. Now we're going to look at just a few, a few snapshots from our Savior's life. Mark 14. Starting in verse 17, when it was evening, so the, the Last Supper, the Passover, when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. Verse 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of, of him. That is, everything that's about to happen that he just said was going to happen, including betrayals, in accordance with God's divine plan. It was already prescribed and foreordained. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So there's the human responsibility portion. Point of this verse is simply that God's will was in even the betrayal from Judas. Nothing happened outside the sovereign plan and control of the Lord. Later, the same scene in Gethsemane, and for the sake of time, we won't read the entire thing, but looking at verse 36. Listen with fresh ears to his prayer in the garden. Verse 34, he said to them, that is Peter, James, and John, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. 
And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The Savior's prayer, the the ultimate test of his faith, going before the Father and ultimately submitting himself, yielding himself to the will of God, which was the implication from the prayer that the will of God was that the Son would proceed with his suffering just as he knew was coming. It was God's will. It wasn't an accident, clearly, more nuanced. God wasn't cleaning up a mess that evil men had made. He didn't turn something good that was evil until he decided to act. There was no plan B. This was the plan. And even at the greatest moment of our Savior's suffering, when he's agonized unto death and he goes before the Lord in prayer, you see that he knew the Father's will was that he would suffer. The Lord was in control of our Savior's trials. Interestingly, in John ten eighteen, and just briefly, the Lord Christ, his own sovereign purposes in what he's doing is, is hinted at when he says that no one is going to take his life apart from him willingly laying it down and that it will be laid down when he decides that it's to be laid down. Again, emphasizing that there is sovereign control even over the suffering and the evil that would come to bear on our Savior through his sufferings, his crucifixion. So if God is sovereign, then I can find comfort in his sovereign control over my trials. The Lord Jesus knew that the Lord God, his Father, was in control of all that was going to come to pass, indeed had ordained it. And he walked by faith. It was the obedience of faith when he was on his knees in Gethsemane saying, not my will but yours. And in that, he is our supreme example of faithfully following the Lord and his purposes. And amidst unimaginable suffering and agony of soul and spirit and anguish that we will never know because we're not perfect, we're not the Lord of glory, he yielded to the Father's will. Point though, it was the Father's will that what would come to pass would come to pass. And of course, we know later that God saw him through. But God the Father was in control the entire time. And I have no doubt that that is in our Savior's mind as he says, not my will but yours, yielding to the control of God. It's important for us, again, this is some of that undiluted medicine that I was referring to. I am not saying that you should go to your brother or sister who you know are struggling with some sort of tragic loss or immense suffering and say, hey, buck up. God's in control. You'll be fine. If you know your friend really, really well and you know that that's exactly the medicine that they need, then please do that. But for most, that's not the case. But this truth at some point in their journey through that difficulty will be what ultimately anchors them in, in hope and comfort. If God is not sovereign even over the trials and the suffering and the evil that we face and anything else on this list that we're about to go through cannot stand. James' lesson last week cannot stand. How can you hope that God means good for you in disciplining and bringing correction to your life for his good if he's not in control over the things that are bringing correction to you? He's the one who wields that instrument. 
a sovereign God. And we can find comfort in his control over our trials. Second, if God is sovereign, then I can find hope in his sovereign purposes for my trials. Scriptures teach us so much, and there may be more, but I just listed a few. We see from Scripture that his purposes for our trials, for our suffering, for those things that he is sovereignly over and has decreed for our lives are for his glory, that they are for his people's good. That's where we have the, that we're being molded into Christ's likeness. That is why James tells us we should consider it all joy when we encounter various trials because we're being perfected by that testing that the Lord is bringing. Similarly in Romans 5, Romans eight twenty eight, of course, right? He works all things together for the good of those who love him. All of those things are brought. Paul, with the thorn in the flesh, the Lord tells him, which had to have been a hard thing for the mighty apostle to hear, that he was not going to remove the thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, so that Paul would be humbled and so that he would recognize that the Lord's grace was sufficient. But it was for Paul's good. We learned last week from Hebrews 12 that it was for are good. And I don't have this listed, and that was an oversight on my part, especially since we've referenced this verse so much. Write down Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Really, the whole section, verses 65 through 72. But in particular, listen to verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Just a little further down in 71, listen to these astonishing words. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We can find hope in God's sovereign purposes for our trials. His word testifies that they're for his people's good. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul teaches there that their suffering and then their comfort from Christ was actually for the purpose of making them better comforters of others. There is hope in knowing God sovereignly brings difficulty and suffering and trials into our lives so that we'll be better comforters of others when they suffer. And again, briefly, I want to consider Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him. does not mean the joy in the midst of the difficulty. I don't see a lot of joy in Gethsemane. But there was deep-seated confidence in the Lord's purposes and the joy that was at the end of the race, at the end of the work. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Several purposes there that are listed, but God's purposes in Christ's suffering were clear, right? There would be joy for him. Here, many would be brought through God's grace because of Christ's 
intercession ultimately is sacrificial death. Mark 10, 45, Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He knew what he was doing. There was purpose in it. And that purpose was a part of God's predetermined plan, right? Foreordained. And Christ, no doubt, had that in mind as he endured. John 17. So I was looking at some of these verses. I was just thinking, and I'll mention this next under timing, but I mean, Christ was, had lived, what, 30 years? Give or take, maybe a little more. Before the we start reading of his earthly ministry, how long had he anticipated what would be brought to pass in the Lord's timing? How long would he have considered the goodness, the purpose that the Lord had for his trial, for his suffering? John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So just, these are just examples of Christ considering God Almighty's sovereign purposes in the trial that he would face in his sufferings. He knew that it would bring the Father glory. Again, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So his own glory. And lastly, 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. Purpose. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He died so that he might bring us to God. Right? We can think of other verses that he's reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ. There are countless verses about the purpose of Christ's death. And the point here is just simply that Christ knew those purposes. And that that joy set before him, those purposes, his glory, the Father's glory, ours being with him in being redeemed, eternal purposes, all of those things were there. There was sovereign purpose for our Lord's trials, and he knew those things. Again, you'd swim around in these purposes for a while, but just immerse ourselves in, in just one of these. But the manifold ways that God brings these things about through suffering and trials. And it's not up to us to try to define exactly which one. That's not the point. The point is to see and to take hope that God, because he's sovereign over our trials and suffering, and he has said these are the things that he does through those things, that we can be hopeful for his, him to be glorified, for us to be sanctified, for our ability to comfort others, and other reasons you may come up with in your study. And lastly, if God is sovereign, then I can find peace in his sovereign timing in my trials. The verses that you have there listed talk about waiting on the Lord. They talk about groaning for consummation in eternity. They talk about temporary afflictions bringing forth an incredible eternal weight of glory. Ultimately, we see in Revelation that every tear will be wiped away. But those are things in the Lord's timing. We find peace 
if God is sovereign, then we can find peace in understanding that our trials, our difficulties are brought about both to their height, to resolution, whatever that may look like in the Lord's timing. And I don't think it's a stretch to consider that Christ, there was timing for him as well. And I just had referenced, imagine how long he lived with the knowledge of what was before him. In Matthew 26, 45, he says the hour is at hand. In Luke 9, 51, it says that the time had come for him to what? Set his face toward Jerusalem. There was timing. The hour language so important through the gospel of John. Just give you just a couple places, but just look at John 16. Before that, John 7, I, I love when the crowds are going to get him. It says, but, but they didn't. And John gives the answer, why? Because his hour had not yet come. Because it wasn't time. Jesus was clearly aware of what was before him. But the time had not come. John 16, 32, Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home. He's talking to his disciples. And to leave me alone. So timing, the timing of the suffering was culminating. It was coming. Listen to these words. And these are words of helpful reminder for us as well. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Christ had peace amidst agony and turmoil because he had confidence in the Lord's timing and the Father was with him. And we don't have time to go through all the verses that exhort us to wait. To ask, but to wait. To plead, but to trust and to wait. And if you remove God's sovereignty from that equation, there's really not a lot of motivation to wait. There's not a lot of peace in waiting on a God who's not powerful enough to act in accordance with what he said he will do. But if God is sovereign, then we can find peace in the fact that he is sovereign over the timing in our trials. Timing for what? Whatever it takes according to his infinite wisdom as he executes everything, his hand can't be stayed, his plans can't be thwarted. And it says right here, just some examples I've given you of his purposes for those sufferings. And it's his timing in bringing those things about. God planned the death of his son and we praise him for it. He planned the suffering of his servants, Peter and Paul, and we marvel with the highest regard for them and what they endured. When I'm studying this, just ask myself, do, do I believe that God plans my sufferings and trials for his glory and for my good? Is my view of God high enough to see that I can take comfort in his control over my suffering? That I can find hope in his purposes for my suffering? And that I can find peace in his timing for my suffering? Again, all flowing out of the fact that he is in control of all of it. First Peter chapter 1, 
starting in verse 3, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is a loaded six verses. There is an eternal focus, verses three through five, on the ultimate consummation of what the Lord will bring forth, which is the final state of your salvation, the final execution of everything that he's promised you. In eternity, He's saying it's his power that reserves that for you through your faith. And that fullness of that salvation has not yet been revealed. In the meantime, you rejoice in that. Why? While you face various trials. And then he tells us why those various trials come. So that the proof of our faith would be made manifest. And he says that that proof is actually more precious than perishable realities, perishable things. And that ultimately, that on that day, when we finally know everything in full, meaning know our experience of salvation in full, that we'll rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Lord is sovereign over our trials, over our difficulties. He's sovereign over evil. By evil, I mean the things that we experience that are suffering, that are trials. And it's because of that sovereignty that we can trust him, that we can have hope, that we can have comfort, that we can have peace. We take that away, everything else crumbles. And we need to build ourselves up on these realities so that, as Carson has said so well in his book, when we face those difficulties, when that suffering comes, there's an anchor for our soul in the truth as we go to the Lord and ask him to help us navigate those deep waters informed by his word.